Well, welcome again, all, everyone. Uh, we are starting a new series here this morning for the beginning of the fall. And uh, I don't know if you know this, maybe this is your first time in a Presbyterian church, but uh, to be a Presbyterian pastor, you have to go to seminary. And seminary is like a three-year graduate school where you go and you learn church history, you learn theology, you learn Greek and Hebrew, and then there's also a bunch of classes that teach you kind of the basics of ministry. And one of those classes that I took was a class on evangelism. And as a part of the assignment, they had all the students go out, and we were required to actually go and share our faith with other people. We were supposed to do a certain number of hours during the semester where we shared with strangers what we believed. Now, look, I'm a pastor. I really like talking with Jesus. I like talking with people about Jesus. But I also know a lot of people don't want to talk about Jesus, especially strangers, right? I don't know anybody, really, who likes to have someone they don't know just walk up to them on the street and say, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? So I thought, you know, as a way to get around this requirement, I would go into one of the local coffee shops and set up a little sign on my desk that said, I need volunteers to help me with my homework. And so I sat there, and when people would come up to me, I'd explain what was going on, what I have to do, and I'd say, you know, I want to hear, I want to tell you what I believe, but I'd really love for you to start. Why don't you tell me what you believe? And I thought I was very clever. <laughs> I thought I had found this great loophole to this tough assignment, but I actually got a whole lot more than I bargained for that day. Because what I found out was pretty quickly, people were willing to open up with me. And a lot of these people were very familiar with Christianity. They were familiar with the teachings of who Jesus was. But they also shared that they had a lot of wounds. They had a lot of hurts, that they had been part of churches, and they had chosen to leave because of the things they'd seen there. What I found out was that these people, they weren't confused about Jesus necessarily, but they were confused because they had never seen a church that looked very much like Jesus. And unfortunately, that is a pretty common story. Maybe that's a part of your story. But what I want you to hear me say this morning is that's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus in the Gospel of John, said, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, over the next few months here, we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13 only. And we're going to take it just a few words at a time, and we're going to be asking this question, what does it mean for us to love one another the way Jesus has loved us? Or maybe another way to put it is, how do we love one another so radically that we become the kind of community where the whole world is drawn in, where the whole world sees Jesus working in us? So this passage, the one we're looking at this morning, it's going to answer that question in three ways. 
It's going to say to love like Jesus, there's three things we need to start off with. We need to stop looking at the wrong metrics. Secondly, we need to discover what matters. And third, we need to give what we have received. We need to stop looking at the wrong metrics. We need to discover what really matters, and we need to give what we have received. So let's talk about this a little bit. We need to stop looking at the wrong metrics. All right, um, a little bit of quick intro to this book. If you've never come across it before, if you don't know anything about it, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the town of Corinth. He wrote it around 54 A.D., And Corinth was in Greece, still is in Greece, uh, but it was a Roman city, and it was a pretty huge city, 80,000, 100,000 people. It made it one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. And because of where it was located, uh, it was nearly surrounded by water everywhere, and so it was a huge trading port, and that means people had come from all across the world to make Corinth their home, to come and try and build a life for themselves, to make money uh, trading, and to be a part of this vibrant city. And so just a few years before this letter, maybe three years before it, Paul had come to Corinth. And he had established a church there, and the church took off. The church grew. It it became a, a thriving congregation, and it was filled with all these different kinds of people from all these different kinds of places, and they had lots of, of gifts. They had lots of skills. These people were intelligent. They had lots of knowledge. They were eloquent. They were great speakers. They had great faith. They were doing great things for others. And yet, something was wrong. Something was off about this congregation. Now, again, we're dropping in near the end of the letter. We're on chapter 13. There's been 12 other chapters already. So if you want to read all about the details, go back. You should read it and catch up to where we are. But, but the gist of the problem is spelled out here in these verses. What we just read, it said, these people... They had all these outward gifts. They had all the trappings of success. But they were lacking love. They were especially lacking a love for each other. A couple of summers ago, there was a podcast series that came out called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Did anybody listen to that? Anybody familiar with it? It was kind of a big deal. A lot of people, uh, it kind of made a splash in the evangelical culture, I guess. Um, But it was a limited series, and it told the story of this church out in Seattle that grew tremendously. It went from just a handful of people meeting in a living room to over 10,000 people. But the most amazing thing about it, the most interesting thing about this church was it also completely collapsed within the span of just a few weeks. It doesn't exist anymore. And it it happened because their pastor was exposed for his harsh and unloving behavior behind the scenes. In my previous life, uh, I was a church planter. I lived in Boston for about 15 years. and, And during that time, I actually encountered this pastor a few times. I heard him preach, and and I'm gonna be honest, I was I was kind of impressed by him. And I wasn't the only one. I remember when the, the ESV Bible translation came out. 
he was one of just a few pastors who endorsed it on the back of the box. Which, you know, that in itself is kind of like a funny idea, right? Endorsing the Bible. But that is, I think, as famous as you can get when you're a pastor, right? If you're the pastor, they say, you guys should check out the Bible. Trust me. That's as famous as you can get. These guys were successful. They were, they were growing. They were considered trailblazers. But the world couldn't see that on the inside something was lacking. On the inside, there was something horribly wrong, and the church is now gone. Now, one of the last episodes of that podcast, they had uh, Tim Keller on. And Tim Keller was also a well-known, famous pastor, pastoring a large church around that time. And he had some really interesting reflections on what might have happened there. And what he, what he said, I think, is relevant for this passage we're looking at. He said, there's a difference between what the Bible calls spiritual gifts and what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. Spiritual gifts are those kind of outward signs, those things that we use to serve the congregation, to serve the community. They're the things like preaching and teaching and administrative gifts, works of mercy, encouragement, those kinds of things. But spiritual fruit is the character and life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It's something that, that God produces in our hearts. In the Bible, in Galatians 5, you get one of the lists of what the spiritual fruits are. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's those kinds of things. And what Keller was saying is that when you're far away from someone, all you can really see are the gifts. You can see what they're doing. You can see what benefit you're receiving from them. But, but that's what you get when you're kind of far away. And then the closer you are to someone, the more you see their fruit. Or maybe their lack of fruit that's in their lives. You see what their character is like. And that's kind of scary. Because here's what that means for us this morning. It means that your giftedness is not a barometer of your spiritual health or your nearness to God. Now, I don't know most of these you college students who've come to join us, but, but I can assume that you're pretty gifted people, right? You're Davidson College students. I can tell you're smart, at the very least. You have a lot of knowledge. I know some people in this room that we have a lot of gifts here in this room. We just did a spiritual gifts assessment for our church, and we found that our number one gift for our whole congregation is faith. But the point here is we've got to be careful not to put too much stock in our gifts. Right? That's what Paul is laying out here. He's saying that you can have all of these great things happening for you. You can be tremendously successful in the world's eyes. And at the same time, you can be really far from God. You can know about, a lot about the Bible. He says here, you can, you can even do miracles, and you can be far from God. I think one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture is Matthew chapter 7. There, Jesus is talking about the resurrection, and he says, on that day, there's going to be a lot of people who 
come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and perform all these miracles in your name? And then I'm going to tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Our giftedness is not a sign of our nearness to God. And, and unfortunately, I think we all know there's a long list of pastors and leaders and you know, Christian celebrities or whatever, people in the, the public sphere who were exposed for living a life that was actually very far from God. And in the same way, there is a very long list of nobodies, people who are not famous, people whose names will never be recorded, people who maybe don't have that many outward gifts to look at, but whose lives are full of fruit, who walk with Jesus every day. So that means pretty simply, Paul, Paul is telling us that if we're looking at the church, if we're looking at ourselves, we've got to change our metrics. We need to stop looking at the wrong thing. Stop looking at the performance. Stop looking at the numbers. Stop looking at the flashing, flashy stuff that everybody else is looking at. And instead, we need to discover what matters. So this is the second point. We've got to discover what actually matters. Okay, so back in the verse, Paul says, you can excel. In all of these things, you can speak in tongues, you can prophesy, you can have faith that moves mountains. And he says, but if you don't have love, then you're nothing. He says, you're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, there's a couple of meanings in that little illustration, the resounding gong. And I think the basic one, the obvious one, is that gongs are loud and noisy things. When I was in college, uh, we weren't cool enough to have RUF, so I'm ashamed to admit I had to be a part of crew. Um, but while I was there, my freshman year, I managed to become the, the sound guy. So I was the guy at the mixer board for all of our meetings, and I can tell you I was very uh, underqualified <laughs> for this job. And so at one of our large meetings, one of our first ones, you know, I don't know how you freshmen are, you're probably much better off than me, but I was pretty insecure. I was very self-aware, and I remember sitting in the back. We were playing music in this big hall, and I messed something up so bad. I don't even know what I did, but not the speakers didn't just start to squeal, but they actually lit up on the inside. This, like, blazing light came out. I don't even think speakers have lights in them. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was on fire. I'm not sure, but it was really bad. And everybody looked right back at me. Everything stopped, you know, like in a movie. At least that's how I remember it. Now, Paul, he's, he's writing before the amplification. So, so this illustration is kind of like the same thing. This is a loud noise. It's a, it's a clanging symbol. It's something that's so loud and so intrusive that he's saying it's not only is it not worshipful, but it actually stops worship. It prevents real worship from happening. And a lot of scholars will say that these gongs and symbols, they actually were a part of ritual pagan worship. So another piece of this is Paul is saying that when we're, we're doing these things without love, we're no different 
from anybody else. When we are living without love, it's just empty rituals. It's lifeless traditions. It's these behaviors, these performances that we're, we're doing because we're hoping they're going to prove that we're good. Without love, these gifts, they're just ways of striving. They're just ways that we're trying to earn our acceptance. And Paul, in this letter, he wants us to see that our Christian life is not just about our outward behaviors but it's about our inner motivations. Not the work of our hands, but the state of our hearts. He says what matters is love. But what does that mean? In English, love is kind of one of those words that, that means everything and it also means nothing. right? It's the word we use to describe a, a, a romance. It's also the word we use to describe the deepest, most intimate relationships in our lives. And it's the word we use to describe pumpkin spice coffee, right? It's a word that, that doesn't mean a lot, but in Scripture, love is a robust word. In Scripture, love is not just a feeling, but love is active. Love is an action. It's, it's not only the way we feel in a relationship, but love is fundamentally a relational thing. Over the past few weeks here at this church, we've talked a lot about this word hesed, which is one of the Old Testament words for love. In your English Bibles, it usually gets translated as steadfast love. And, and hesed is this very special, deep, multifaceted concept that I think a short definition would be it is God's relentless commitment to redeem his people at any cost. Hesed is God's relentless commitment to redeem his people at any cost. And as we see here, as we keep going through this chapter, we're going to see that Paul, who was a Pharisee before his conversion, Paul, who was well-conversant in the Hebrew scriptures, he is trying to take the Greek word for love, agape, and bring some of that Hebrew understanding into it. He's trying to put some meat on the bones of this idea of love. He wants to see, he wants the church to see that at the heart of our faith is the active love of God. See, the gospel is a message that there is a God who, at his very essence, is love. 1 John chapter 4 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Our God is a God who relates to a broken, messed up world by committing to come and redeem it. That's what love is. That is active love. See, every other religion out there, every other worldview out there is going to tell you that the way to God is through your performance. It's through your giftedness. It's through what you bring to the table. The way to God is by 
fixing your bad behaviors, learning to meditate the right way or think the right way, learning to do the right things. And if you do those things, you can achieve acceptance, you can transcend into nirvana, whatever it is. It's all about you. It's all about your efforts. But only Christianity says there is a God who pursues his people in love. Not because of your performance, but in fact, in spite of your performance. God is so loving that it's, it's hard for us to understand it. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. Paul, in the, his letter to Romans, he says, it's rare that anyone would ever think of dying for a righteous person. Though maybe it's possible. Maybe you could imagine that someone might give their life to save a good person. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to offer, when we had nothing to give, the act that saved us was the greatest expression of love that this universe has ever seen. And so that means for us, the ultimate measure of our faith, the ultimate measure of our, our spiritual health or whatever you want to call it, it's not just whether we know about that. It's not do we know the facts, do we know that story. It's not do we have that in our heads. But do we know it in our hearts? See, a Christian is not, firstly, someone with a bunch of great gifts. A Christian is someone who can see themselves honestly. A Christian is someone who can look at their heart and say, I'm actually a mess. And even the good things that I do, if I'm being honest, they're still tainted by all these selfish desires and instincts. And yet, even though that's true of who I am, there is this perfect, holy God out there who sees the worst parts of me, and he still wants to be with me forever. He wants us so much. He wants you so much that he came for you, that he crossed all of time and all of eternity, and he died to redeem you. Our salvation comes through love. Do you know that's, that's the moment of salvation? That's when you come to faith. Salvation is actually the moment when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the amazing love of God, and then he enables you to say, I want to love him back. See, the thing about all these other gifts that Paul is talking about, all the other stuff that he mentions at the beginning of this passage, is those are all things you can fake. They're all things that can be counterfeit. But a genuine love for God cannot happen apart from his working in your life. See, love, love is the litmus test for real faith. That's what really matters. Not can you recite a bunch of Bible verses. Not do you have great theology. Not do you 
Have you been to church a lot throughout your life? No, the question is, do you love him? Do you know him? Are you known by him? Is Jesus this morning precious to you? What we see in this passage is once we have discovered that, once we've discovered that love is what really matters, then thirdly, a Christian is someone who gives the love they've received. We give what we have received. Now, what we're going to find out over the next few weeks as we take this chapter apart word by word and verse by verse, we're going to discover that this beautiful poem about love is not just some flowery thing that Paul wrote for us to read at weddings. But actually, the the intention of this chapter, the, the thing that brought this chapter about was a rebuke. He wrote this chapter to the church in Corinth, and he was saying, you know, you guys, you have all these great outward gifts. You have all these great outward signs. You are presenting yourself in a certain light. But if you're really so great, why aren't you kind? Why aren't you patient? Why aren't you forgiving? Why are you hurting one another? Why are you leaving these wounds in people? It's a rebuke. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to that church. It's an invitation to our church. It's an invitation to each one of us to ask the question, who are we really? It's an invitation to admit that maybe we aren't so put together Maybe we aren't as gifted as we try to present ourselves to everybody else. This is an invitation to what you might call vulnerability. You know, it's not in my strengths and my gifts where I learn the most about God's love. The place where I know God's love the most is in my weakness. Look, I'm grateful for the gifts that God has given me. I want to use them to serve. I want to use them for his glory. But the place where I most intimately know his love is in my weakness. It's in my sin. It's in my failing. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards has this very famous sermon series on this chapter. And in, this, in these verses, he has some points of application. And I had a slide. I think we're having some slide troubles today. I had lots of slides. You can look online for them later or something. <laughs> but, but one of them, I, I wanted to show you this quote from Edwards. Because Edwards, as he's applying this, he has some questions for us. He says, if you call yourself a Christian... Here are some questions for you. Where are your works of love? Do they abound in you and you in them? What particular deeds of love have you done? Do you love God 
What have you done for him to advance his glory and his kingdom in the world? Do you love the people around you? What have you done to benefit them? I think those are good questions. I think it would be wise for us to to go and to reflect on those and to challenge ourselves with with that kind of application. But I'm also going to say, as I reflect on those questions, I want you to know, I have failed at this. And not just in some abstract way a long time ago. I mean, this week I've failed at this. There have been times this week where I have not loved well. There have been too many times this week where I've sat at my kitchen counter and and looked at my phone and ignored my family. And you know what? I don't want to tell you that. I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I don't want you to think that I'm not a person who loves perfectly, but I'm not. (laughs) But here's the good news. The gospel means God's love is still active. God is still drawing near to me in spite of my poor performance. God is still pursuing me. And wherever you have fallen short of this standard, where you have fallen short this week, I want you to know that if you belong to him, he is still drawing near to you as well. And here's the really cool thing about this. The more that we experience his love in those places, his never giving up, always active committed to us forever love, the more you experience that in those broken places, well, that's actually what's going to change you. And another thing, when you and I can actually get honest about our weakness and stop letting our gifts be this mask for us to hide behind, that's the path to real power in this place. You know, if we could be real, if we could be real like that, not just with God privately in our our rooms, but if we could be real like that with each other, then, then this congregation can be something really special. Not just another Sunday show, not just another bunch of programs and some songs and some meetings to go to, not just a bunch of noise. But we could be a place where God's love is really on display. That's what we're called to. Don't you want that? That's what we are created for. That's what I know your hearts are seeking. To be a part of a kingdom, family, bound together, committed to one another, loving each other the way that Jesus did. Now, we're going to have a chance to test this out here in the next few months. Robert is retiring, and there's going to be moments where things that are very familiar start to change. And there's going to be times when we start to be challenged by that. And there's probably going to be some strong emotions in those days. But do you know, if we're we're looking at this passage, that's going to be an opportunity for us to grow. 
It's going to be an opportunity for us to be open about our weaknesses, open about our fears and our concerns, and then to keep loving each other even when we're falling short. That's how the world will know we're his disciples. That's the way he loved us. And so the last thing I'm going to say here as I I wrap up is, regardless of how you're coming here this morning, regardless of your connection to this very particular church, I hope the one thing that you've heard this morning is that this amazing love that God has, it's for you. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. It's for you specifically. He has pulled out all the stops to make you his own. He has pulled out all the stops to to show you his love, to rescue you from every sin and struggle and fear and anxiety and weakness and doubt and to bring you into eternity with him. And so if you're here today and you're you're starting to realize just how much God really does love you and, and you're thinking, gosh, well, maybe I'm ready to love him back. Don't wait. Don't wait another minute. He is here waiting for you with open arms. And so are we in this church. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that your spirit would move in us. I pray, God, that we would be a church known not for our gifts, not for our show, but for our love. Not that kind of saccharine love that looks out on the world and says, oh, I love everybody. But a real active love where we are laying our lives down for one another, where we are free to be ourselves with one another. We're showing the active redemption of God as you work salvation out in our lives. Lord, draw us to you. We pray in Christ's name.